Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 484 of the Constructive Criticism Podcast. I'm your host, Easy, and I'm joined by a man with a black beanie today, Abe Stein. Yeah, I feel like the black beanie is a bit of a rare view for, uh, I don't know, red beanie is just a real real good torment beanie, but I, it is a black beanie today. Today is my, my every day of the week. It's cold. It's It's been below 50 all day, uh, lows in the 30s, rainy. Good day to, to sit inside. It snowed in Utah this week. Yeah, but you're like out in Utah. It snows there. I gotta ask, uh, you, for those who don't know, Abe, you work in a bank. We kind of mentioned that the other week on the podcast. Yeah. Is it buggy you don't get to wear a beanie to work? Uh, yeah. yeah. It does. I was thinking about it today while I was pumping gas after work, and my head was cold. And I was you like... Didn't, you don't just immediately leave and put on your beanie? I could bring a beanie in my car or like in my like with my stuff and then put it on at the end of the day, but uh, it messed up my hair and uh, to wear it in the mornings. Sure. And I don't want to deal with it. And then I'm like, you know, talking to people about their banking or whatever. And if I'm having a bad hair day or like I got hat hair, they'd be like, "Ooh, this scrub." I why, why am I why am I trusting him? I it's so funny. I uh, I am the type of person that like. When I work in an office, the first thing that I do when I get home is take off my pants and put on like basketball or sweatshorts. Like it is, it is literally the first thing I do. Like, bef- like before I hug my kids, before I like kiss my wife, it's like, no, I want these pants off my body right now. So I could, I could not work in a bank because like I couldn't wear jeans. And I don't know about that. I, I gotta say, there is a lot to be desired about, uh, about, working with the public sometimes and the dress code the dress code is one of them i would love to be I, and i'm like a you know middle of the road dressed magic player most magic tournaments i'm like all right khakis hoodie t-shirt beanie like the, the just the classic you know it's, it's just it's my I'm, I'm hanging out having a good time but i'm respectful about it. i'm not i'm not that's so funny you know, I, I literally we were going to the grocery store and i was in basketball shorts flip-flops and a hoodie and i looked at my wife going in and i was like i look like i just top eight at a pro tour this is an inappropriate outfit <laughs> yeah it's the what's the madden ass special uh let's let's talk about you know we improve every day on our own uh you know and that's kind of the point of the show just like our outfits could improve you know you can you can, you can dress for success uh I, I don't think that'll be your always improving moment this week though abe if you were to focus on something this week, we had a big episode on it last week. What did you do this week to be always improving? Yeah, so my always improving moment this week um, was kind of a, a bit of a deviation from what I talked about last episode, um, which is was a lot of um, you know kind of my high level preparation stuff that I'm doing right now um, to really focusing on um, my in game play. And especially just giving myself time to uh, think through like really pivotal turns. So over the weekend, I played two two slot RCQs, um, and I wound up finding myself in the semifinals match of both uh, playing for the invite. And in the modern one on Saturday, I like I that, that game was like on camera. The the store's hashtag gaming arena. Um, they like streamed their whole event. It was really cool. Um, Jared Thompson was there. I know he tweeted about it. Uh, 
but uh, I had a really, really tough game against coffers in game three. We had a lot of decisions to make, and especially around like, you know, cards I'm pitching to grief just to grief my opponent. Um, not even a scam, just to like try to clear the way based on what they'd taken on a thought seize and really trying to read read the game aside. And I, I felt like I did a really good job of taking my time there, even though I did ultimately lose that match. Um, but then I was like going into the sealed one I played on on Sunday. Um, I had just a lot of times where I was, you know, the games are coming down to, especially in sealed, the games coming down to like one or two big decisions you make either in like are you attacking or are you blocking um you know what is this game going to be about where where are we all at you know am i ahead or behind do i need to force the issue or not uh and in all of those decisions i feel like over the weekend in my matches in sealed and in draft um i think i did a really really good job of just slowing myself down like taking inventory of the whole situation uh, and then making ultimately uh, what I felt to be the correct decision. So, like for example, uh, in the in like my win and in for top eight, I drawn round one with a just a, like some long long games of my sealed deck in round one. So I'm playing another player with a draw. Uh, we're both three one one and. Uh, we're kind of this racing situation, and I have this decision of, okay, am I pumping the brakes and, like, stopping attacking or, you know, sending just one creature and leaving back, like, two blockers to uh, to try to set the game up so that I will take a little bit longer, but maybe my flyer will, will close it? Or am I, like, just shoving and continuing the race, and I just stopped and just did a lot of, you know, the math is like, okay, well, if they have this or, or that, or, like, they have this trick that I know they have. You know, am I ever beating that? Um, if uh, if they have like a removal spell in their hand, if they draw like that Quintorius in their deck, they have more bombs than me. Like, what what is really going to be the important factor of this game, and can I afford to or can I not? And ultimately, in that spot, uh, I determined that it was best to shove and continue the race, um, which ultimately paid off. We they, they had to be the one to stop attacking first, the swiping on the play, and then um, I was able to put them in a spot where they continued not being able to attack, even though I would like. I was then able to like tap out um, like of blockers in order to like use my creatures. You tap to like put counters on them and things like that. Using a lot of my my resources that way and not getting punished for it. Like they can't even attack me anymore because they're under so much heat. Uh, and and that paid off. And then in the you know effectively the finals, um, there was a spot where my opponent had the blue red vehicle that like when it attacks it makes a treasure and they can play cards top of the library and they'd like put two counters on it so we, and i have the, a flipped um you know six six with an equipment on it so it's a seven sevens we both have these seven sevens and we're both at like 13 and i have this decision of okay can i should i take this hit and then put myself in a position where like i can make some chump blockers or you know i'm really just trying to ride out my seven seven to victory and maybe let them attack again next turn or do i really need to just nip this in the bud now and you know, take my licks, uh, trading off, you know, my my only really important creature for their vehicle um, or or not. And, and ultimately, like, just taking the time to decide, am I winning this game in the long game? Am I, you know, do I need to be pushing the issue now? Is my card worth more than theirs? And just actually answering all the questions and giving myself the time to. And I felt like even though there were a lot of spots over the course of that tournament where maybe I didn't make the absolute best play, 
um, or or I, there was room for me to improve um, on some of the decisions I made in game leading up to those. I made the right calls in those spots, including maybe making more conservative decisions than I would normally be inclined to, um, or more aggressive decisions than I normally be inclined to, depending on the situation, um, and really testing myself against uh, where I thought. Like, instead of going with my gut, we talked about a lot with heuristics of, like, going where I think I should do just based on my gut instinct, really evaluating it and really digging deep on it, and it paid off. Um, and I was able to, like, I made the more conservative play of, okay, let's just trade seven sevens here and, uh, you know, like, kind of reset where we're at. I'll retain my life total, and I think I'm going to win a longer game because I had just more engines going. Um and I did. And so I, I qualified for Denver um, that way. But but overall, on the weekend, I, I didn't feel like there was a spot where I had one of those big, pivotal moment decisions. And it, I made the wrong, I like fell on the wrong side of the fence uh, on him. And I think a big part of that was taking the time to, to slow down. Something we talk about a lot, but I think especially after listening to Mason talk about it last week um, in depth, like it really uh, like resonated with me that I should be giving those as much time as they deserve and not just leaning on, Oh, I know what I should be doing here. And then just playing out the full game, um, on the, the piloting of my heuristics. So I, I really love two things that you said there. The first one, you use the term pump the brakes. And you also talked, talked about, um, kind of like the conservative lines, maybe the more defensive lines in a lot of ways. Um, not this last podcast, but the podcast before for Smash through the My Smash podcast, we did an entire episode on on taking a moment because in a game like Smash, you the decisions happen rapidly. So finding opportunities to take a moment, whether it's in between games or whether it's while you're on the the while you have invincibility after you die or while your opponent's dead, it's really important to like find opportunities to reflect like what is happening in this game what do i need to happen in this game what is my current win condition that type of stuff and one of the things about magic that i really love and especially this limited format we don't have to go too far in this limited format but this limited format also off because because this limited format is so aggressive it it actually gives you ample time and opportunity to take your to take your decisions seriously. You talked about combat tricks. I think combat tricks are like really good in this limited format. And and this limited format really pays for what Abe is saying to like take a step back and take a moment. Because there are so many instant speed cards that can that can do things. Uh, I, I don't know. I just I really appreciate the the both pumping the brakes is like a good way of saying like Okay, we're going. We're going to take a moment, and initializing that moment and ha- realizing that you're going to do it, I think, is more important than people realize. They don't actually make the conscious conscious effort to do that, and I really appreciate that you did. Yeah, I think it's it's something that uh, a lot of players, at least I'll, I'll be in a lot of situations, especially playing limited, where players will just commit to the idea that okay, we're going to make the play that ends this game in two turns either way rather than considering, can I take this game three or four more turns? Yeah. Um, and, and really taking time to, you know, recognize that they can control the pace of things too, especially when it comes to comes to draft uh, and, and games around combat like that, where, you know, it's not so much... Like in modern, you know, I can't really pump the brakes 
uh, in match where if my opponent just draws Karn or the one ring, the game's just going to end immediately. You know, everyone yeah. has bombs um, left and right. It's it's a little bit different than that. Um, but yeah, so, so what was your always improvement mode this week, Spencer? Yeah, so um, as you were talking, I was trying to decide which one to talk about. Um, I guess I guess I'm going to do this one. Um, so I did not play a 1K RCQ that I had planned on playing um, for mental health reasons. I spent the whole week drafting, playing sealed, um, really getting used to this limited format. Something that I haven't dedicated a lot of time to over, over the last year, just due to being busy. And my mental health was not in a place where I felt like going to play Magic at all was a good thing. And, you know, I think that some things that, you know, people don't know about me is I have pretty severe anxiety. Um, it's, it's, it can be crippling at times. And one of the things that, that actually affects me in is, um, like, games that have ladder play. So, like, Magic Arena, um, Smash Bros. Uh, has, has it as well. So, I, like, for example, I've actually never gotten Mythic and Limited on Arena. It, it, it is a goal that I need to set for myself and do. Um, but after this weekend and after, you know, doing a bunch of studying and stuff, you know, I was like, man, like, I'm letting my anxiety kick my butt. And um, I have been about two games outside of getting what's called Elite Smash um, in Smash Bros. for a character that I main for probably like two months. And um, today, today I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. Like, uh, today is the day I'm going to do this thing. Um, sat down, uh, want lot, like, win, like, win, loss, win, loss win loss and then won four in a row and and got there and it's it's interesting um this is something that has happened to me in in magic before like i've gone like like the the diamond phase of arena gets me really bad like there are months where if i don't sit down and say I, i'm gonna get mythic this month i just won't get mythic on arena for example and there are a lot of months where i just don't even engage in the ladder system but kind of sitting down and making a decision like, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to conquer this anxiety. It, it sounds simple, but like, it's a thing that has caused me physical pain in the past. Um, and I don't know. It, it was good for my mental health. Like, I jumped up and was like, jumping up and down. Like, I did it. Like, I finally got this monkey off my back. And my daughter, because I'm a stay at home dad right now, is like, jumping up and down with me. It was really cute. Um, but it, I think that the thing that it applies to in magic is like a lot of times I'll, when I'm coaching people, they'll talk about like uh, not being able to get over the hump of, of like top eighting an RCQ into going to an RC or things like that. And a lot of that is a mental story that you're telling yourself. Like at some point, if you're thinking like, oh, I'm going to lose this, it's just another top eight or like this, this vicious cycle that you put yourself through. Even to the point where, like, the top eight starts and you're already creating a narrative in your head of how things are going to go. And that's what happens to me on ladder play. Um, you know, one thing goes bad during a win-in and for Mythic or for Elite Smash or, you know, whatever the thing that is that I'm doing. And I, my brain just starts churning. And I think that the thing that really helped me today was making the decision, knowing, like, okay... 
I've got a 70-plus percent win percentage with this character. If I just decide to do it today, eventually the numbers are just going to make it happen for me. And I think a lot of people that, like, top eight all these RCQs that don't convert into that RC, the truth is is that you have the win percentage to do this. There's something mentally that's a barrier that you need to get over, and you just need to sit down and say, okay, like, this is going to be the time, and maybe it's not this time, but... The numbers say that I will do this, and to just let that be your truth rather than the things happening in the game. Yeah, I, I can't. I mean, as someone who, especially early in their career when they started playing tournaments, had a real struggle with the with the winning in. Um, like it was a real barrier for me. I, I had like multiple events in a row where I was like, and I, this was back when I was in like I must have been like a junior or senior in high school, so I was like one of the youngest players in the room. I was playing blue eye Delver and standard and you know, like I would just wind up constantly in the mix and then constantly like, like missing to the point where it was one where I just played so bad and was like, why on earth did I do that? And I like just thought through it and I was like, it's because I just didn't like, I was so stressed about these other factors that I wasn't allowing myself to think clearly. And I'm a big believer that, and I think even you talk to players who are really experienced or players who are inexperienced, um, about kind of their feelings under pressure. Um, and it's really good to give yourself opportunities to uh, get exposure to that, that feeling of, you know, I really want to win this, you know, I really want, and I, you know, I'm in, and I'm invested in it too. I'm invested in the outcome. And that's going to mean that my brain's going to care a lot about the outcome while I'm doing it and allowing yourself to either find ways to um, suppress that, uh, that feeling of like, you know, your positioning within it and how much it matters to you outside of it in order to remain objective and, and perform as high as you can. Um, or even just opportunities to, you know, accept that you either, right, you can win these or you're going to lose some of them and just have more opportunities um, is really, really uh, valuable in kind of the psychological game of getting yourself to just be able to play in, in those spots. Like, I, I mean, I think that it's really hard to play any game or really it's hard to like, yeah, that, that's all said. Like, it's hard to play any game where your brain is building a narrative as you're doing it, because that's, that's going to take mental energy that's not being put into playing that game. And it's also going to bring your emotions into it, too, when things go off the narrative you're trying to build for yourself, too, right? Like, right. if you're building this narrative of like, oh, yeah, like, my opponent's mulling into five, so I'm going to win for sure. And then, like, their hand is competitive and they're... You know, they're in and maybe you you like miss your this happened to me in uh playing for top eight this weekend where I like have a really, really strong hand on the draw with two lands. If I draw my third land on turn three, any land in my deck, I'll be totally fine. And I just miss for like three turns. Don't have my third land drop on time. You know, I'm like trying to hang in it and I was like I was up a game and I was like if I had really been invested in the narrative of like, oh, you know, they mulligan to six, my hand's really good, I just need to draw a land, then it's like, oh my god, I can't draw the land. I'm just like cursed, I'm not meant to win this. Uh, you know, that would really affect my ability to think through the game I'm, I'm playing. Um, and I think it's like, I, don't know, I, th I think there's a lot to, to get into there, but, but overall just giving yourself the exposure and, you know, allowing the, your narrative spinning to build you hills that you're climbing and conquering, like that actually helps you in, in the future too. So that's really great. If you want to support the show, one of the best places to do that is head over to patreon.com slash ccmtg like Dylan did. Dylan is our newest patron. I want to give Dylan a shout out. Thank you so much. 
you want to really support the show, though, we are looking for a new sponsor. Um, I I just want to give a shout out to period MTGO. Like I think of the 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 MTGO traders gift certificates that have been sent to whether it be Sky or um, you know just different people over the years and. I having a place like Pure MTGO that I would recommend to people to like go and start their content creation career. It's like a way like, Oh, like apply to be a content creator here. They're always looking for new people and to have MTGO traders go down this week. Uh, or I don't even know if it's technically down yet, but spoiler, um, Pure MTGO and MTGO traders are, are no more. And, um, you know, it, it's 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 something that we had been talking about a lot uh, on this podcast when I was promoting them. You know, it's like, hey, like, if you don't have a rental service, you should sell your cards to stuff like this to keep this stuff, you know, around. And, I don't know, I just, I appreciate uh, the years of this. Like, they were willing to sponsor us alongside of Oasis Games for a long time, and yeah, just shout out to them, and I I wish everybody who was that was their content journey, like you know the success in the future. Uh, should we dive into the main topic, our training grounds, so to speak? Yeah. So uh, this week's training grounds, we're going to be taking a little look at standard, a format that uh, has. I don't know. I feel like. It's so weird. Have you been at RSQs recently, Spencer, where you hear people talk about how standards be the next RSQ season and they seem like worried or like upset or agonized about it? Uh, I actually have not played RSQs this season, so I have not dealt with this. Well, let me tell you, my ear to the ground uh, in my local scene, I've heard a lot of people kind of like groaning at it and it really confuses me because I think standard is one of the coolest formats and one of the most unique and most like core to what, at least why associated with magic formats there is out there. Um, and so we're going to be going into that, especially ahead of, you know, we're going to have modern season wrapping up here soon and standard season starting after that. So it's really important to us that we not only touch on the format and know where it's at right now before any, um, you know, innovations that might come from, yeah. you know, time of the, of the format hammering itself out. I was, trying, I was trying to look this up for this episode and couldn't find it, but I, I'm pretty confident to say that modern season ends this, this year in December. And standard season is allowed to pick up right after, basically. Um, so the the, car, the decks that we're talking about will have it, it will not be all of this format. Like I think that it will actually be two different standard formats technically for this standard season. But I do believe that the end of modern season is in December, and the scheduling is is like you you could see February RCQ. Yes. Yeah, there there will be RCQs of this format before um, before there are any more releases in the standard. Yeah. So before any more products are released, this is this is gonna be the format. So we thought it was important to to check in on it and uh, and take a look at it. Um, the other thing that you had mentioned before the show started is that this is an untested standard format uh, in the word like as far as like wizards goes. Do you want to talk about that really quick? Yeah, uh, I mean. We talked about this when the, the change was made, but I think because so not a lot of people engage with standard, especially on a paper level, that maybe it's not something that people remember. But this is a format where they had just made the decision to kind of expand 
the timeline on what cards are standard legal. So we didn't have a rotation that we were expecting to have and, and that Wizards was expecting to have uh, when they were designing the sets for uh, for standard play. So, for example, like, you know, we banned Fable of Mirror Breaker and Invoke Despair. Um, and what was the last one, Spencer? Uh, F- Fable, Invoke Despair, and uh, Bankbuster. Yeah, Bankbuster. So, like, these are cards that, that they banned, but everything else from those sets is still is still in standard when it was maybe expected that it wouldn't be. Uh, and so that means that there's a lot of synergies that really are untested or un, um, you know, not expected in cards from like uh, Capenna that weren't supposed to be there. Some of the support for like the domain cards might be a little stronger than it was intended to be. Atraxa is still in the format, or maybe it was uh, it was not supposed to be supported in the way it is. So there's a lot of I, I personally find that really cool in what it's allowed um, there to be such a broad range of decks and and options available um that maybe have some overlap that wasn't entirely intended but but maybe is uh is is really cool and fun i think it's just important to remember that this format is you know somewhat of uh somewhat of a unique one for that reason and um especially as we go into standard season to to really think about the the full breadth of the picture and, and what you have access to so just a humble brag really quick. What do you think my highest win percentage in any magic format ever is? I'm going to say based on the context, standard. No, it's extended at 80%. Lifetime. Uh, so extended, for those who don't know, was a four-year magic format. So instead of two years, you got four years. Um, where it was the last two standard formats, basically. And... Uh, Three years of standard is pre- getting pretty close to extended, man. That that's true. we're as close as we've ever been. Yeah. So if you liked uh, if you liked early pioneer, this this might be a fun format for you. Okay. Let's dive in though. There are actually a lot of decks that are capable in standard right now. Like it, we're not even gonna be able to cover. We actually can't cover every deck that in the lat since the set was released got a top eight. That's how many good decks there are. So uh, let's start with Esper though, and I'm not actually talking about Esper Legends. I think that as the format has gone on, that deck has fallen out of favor, and we much more likely to see Esper mid range. Um, if this, the, I think one of the reasons that this has happened is actually just the kind of the breadth of the type of cards that, like, you're capable of playing. This is a deck that I've played a ton of now. Um, you know, we have the new Scooter, or Schooner, uh, it, but it is a wedding announcement uh, Virtue of Loyalty deck that has adopted... Um, what was the name of the black-white Alara card that was... Tidehouse Killer? Thank you, Tidehouse Killer. Um, deep, deep cavern bat doing a tight hollow schooler impression and really is like this disruption mid range deck, uh, in the Esper colors, uh, still leaning on Rafine. Uh, that's been one of my best hits of all time, by the way, in my, in my hits for the pick two set review. Um, it, the deck is kind of exactly what you think, right? Like you get to play make disappear, you get to play the best removal and go over the throat, get lost, cut down. Um, it can it can kind of do it all, uh, and then what's really surprising to me about this deck, Abe, 
is its mana base is really clean in the fact that like Dark Slick Shores and um and Seacrone Coast can fill kind of those er- those early land slots, and then it just turns on your slow lands like really easily so that you can curve out in any way that you want whether if you don't have you know a cut down play you don't have stuff like you can easily just play a tap on on turn one into just having perfect mana the rest of the game yeah i think um you know as someone who had not played a lot of standard between uh, i mean all the way back to the rc in um san diego and and now um, but, but obviously, you know, I think a lot of players have that experience, especially ones who were quali- qualified for that RC or were paying attention to that RC. Um, you're kind of asking what's the difference between this Esper deck and, and those Esper Legends decks that were, um, like the best position decks in the, in that tournament. Um, and the biggest difference, I think, uh, in looking at these decks when I was, uh, you know, prepping for it and playing some for the, for the, the podcast was, um, that deck really relied on, it's, it's mana. I think it has, actually has a ton to do with the lands. Because you're talking about the mana base, Spencer. Um, the Esper Legends decks, they were kind of leveraging the fact that your Legends made it so that you could interact with what was going on on the opponent's side with the um, channel lands for really cheap. And you get a lot of value out of that um, to mitigate flooding and be able to play a high land count to curve into Rafine. Um, and even like start your curve with like Skrelv and go all the way up to shoulder but the format has become less and less about that and it's more about just playing the good two drops in Nerfine, um including like subterranean schooner um you know deep cavern bat like you're talking about and less of the things that are legendary but the man is still supported there in not having to play um so many you know legendary lands and um not having to play so many uh, like plaza of heroes that are really specific uh for for casting legends and, and freeing itself up from those restrictions, and, but still playing this game plan of, okay, I just have these efficient, um, you know, and, and somewhat disruptive or value generating two and like two mana creatures into Rafine. Uh, and then, you know, my Urtais and Wandering Emperors, uh, you know, Sideboard Childreds to kind of play this more mid rangey close game plan. Uh, and, you know, cheap counter magic like Make Disappear or cheap removal like Go for the Throw, just efficient cards. Um, to kind of close the game while being proactive in that. And I think that this whole, um, like, archetype, there's a lot of spins on the Esper deck. If you look on on MTG Goldfish or look through deck lists, there's still people who play a more Legends package deck. There's still, um, like, a lot of of variation. Uh, But at the core of it, these are decks that are just playing the best, like, mid-range two-drops and Rafine as a way to leverage those being as good as they are, right? Like Deep Cavern Bat and Rafine, excellent curve. You're going to get to connive on your lifelinking flyer and also disrupt your opponent from interacting with you. I had a 5-5 bat today, and I was like, this is... I have a Baneslayer Angel in play. What is happening? Yeah, the Baneslayer bat with your best card, with your answer to it under it, like that's... Yeah. It's it's a lot to handle. Um, Or like Fairy Mastermind is a card card that we see a lot too that's you know kind of punishing in those mirrors like okay you're going to connive well i'm going to get an extra card trying to find an answer so it's it's really kind of this its own um entity playing the same kind of game plan as esper legends of of rafine plus some cheap interaction plus the good two drops uh, but taking that to a level that's not so con- constraining and fine i think that's made it one of the if not the like de facto best deck especially looking at the magic online results this was like 
half of the Sunday Challenge top eight because uh, people just copy paste the deck list from the day before. Yeah, I do. I do want to call something out it, that this deck does really well. Um, it's able to double spell on turn five and then play a flash game every every turn in between. So like you can either play a deep crab and bad on turn two or leave up like a removal spell or a counter spell or a flash creature or whatever. And then from there, the only time that you actually have to tap mana basically is is to play a Rafine, uh, a Lord Skitter, or uh or a wedding announcement. And that's basically it. Um so it, it gets to play not only does it get to play like some of the best interaction cards, but it also just gets to play half the game at, at instant speed. Yeah, I think Virtue of Loyalty is doing a lot of work um, here in enabling that. Uh, and I think that card has been like one of the biggest hits of that yeah, set, I, which I is saying a lot because the Eldrain set has so many really, really fantastic cards. But being able to have like a flash, another flash creature that allows you to also leave up your removal or your interaction and then can be your, okay, I'm going to tap out and try to like just take over the game here and. Uh, like get some value on the board in the face of you know cards like Sunfall um, or or win like Creature Mirrors like that that card is just so powerful that uh, I think it's it's made a, a huge difference in enabling that alongside the already very good you know shell of wedding nuts and everything. So yeah, the next thing that I want to talk about is Mono Red. Uh, just so there, I want to I want to say something though. This card, this deck is playing zero new cards and had its best weekend ever this weekend. Like, I, I follow Standard pretty closely at three in the top eight on Saturday of the challenge. And I think that it goes to show that, like, when you stop respecting a deck, um, you know, it can come out. However, this deck got a ton of new stuff during Eldraine, uh, whether it be Godric, um, Charming Scoundrel, uh, and, as well as uh, Witch Witchstalker Frenzy, all, all of these cards. One of them, Witchstalker Frenzy. I, I think we should talk about for what it's worth, um, because that card kills Shieldred. Uh, but this deck gained a lot of cards, and then the innovation of adding Witchstalker Frenzy to the deck that got these really amazing other cards is really cool. I have I have a problem with this deck though. I am an anti Phoenix chick guy. I think that card is hot garbage, Abe. Uh, and it's really hard for me. Like I I, uh, I played this deck a little bit and talked about it with with Mason. So uh, I was playing this deck. I was like, you know, it had top eight of the challenge um, during the Wilds era, and I was like, it's fine. Like it's the definition of fine. I think I even said it on the podcast. And I don't know that it, it has gotten much better other than when its position is really good. Um, there's like a lot of life-linking creatures, a lot of ways to gain life. Um, and funnily enough, there's actually less Sheldred than I've seen in a long time, uh, which pushes this deck up even more than it already was. So it, it, it is certainly in its best position. Yeah, I mean... Uh, talking about Phoenix Chick, like, I'm kind of glad that the third best red one drop in the world where we have Kumano faces Kakazan and Monastery Swiss Spear, which are two of the best in the last 10 years, uh, is Phoenix Chick, which is just kind of not 
the most inspiring or exciting. It, it really is just a red one drop that is hard to block. It'll get some damage in, and that's about all it does. I don't think I've ever even and a lot of playing a lot of mono red um, on Arena. I don't think I've ever actually paid red red to return it. Uh, but the deck is, you know, to your point, it has picked up things, especially in the two drop and three drop spot. It's not even playing. Uh, like Thundering Raijus all the time anymore. I know that was a card that was kind of the defining top end of the red deck uh, before this, uh, but now is just able to streamline down to, you know, topping out at three, um, Godric kind of being one of the, the best ways to, like, get get your reach um, in and, and lowering its curve and being able to really leverage, um, leverage the efficiency of its spells. And it, it seems like a great week one deck, which is I'm not surprised that it did so well in the first challenge, um, but but also it's it's one that once it starts being respected, uh, you know definitely definitely falls behind. But it's one you can't forget about either. I think like Furnace Punisher is still as good as it's ever been at being this like really really solid payoff to punishing a lot of people's um, mana bases. I think that you know as we kind of get to uh, decks that aren't just Esper. Um, like there's a lot of decks that have to be built to respect this. Like a lot of the decks that are two colors, or uh, and even some of the ramp decks are playing a lot of basics so that they can not only enable their ramp effects but not get so punished uh, by this card, even though they're like a domain deck or uh, or or have these these constraints. Uh, and it, it is definitely something that while it may not have a week as good as you know three or four copies in the top eight in the challenge every every week, maybe not even every month, it's still a deck that isn't going to do that because people are respecting it enough to keep it from doing that. And it's important that if you're, you know, kind of brewing in standard or you're picking a deck in standard, that you keep in mind what the checks that the mono red deck is going to put on you are so that you can play by those rules. It, it really is something that defines what you need to be prepared for in terms of, of aggro. And there's a lot of other, like, forms of aggro in the format, too, that I think that mono red has a good leg up on because of its removal and because of how clean it is. Yeah, I think that playing, like, single colors. Uh, we saw mono black not that long ago being one of the best standard decks. We don't see that right now, but like there's totally a world where that something like that could come back just because of the nature of this format. And uh, I, I will say though, um, before we move on that charming scoundrel, um, that card does not read like as good as it is. That card's really good. In. Uh, it, it, the, it does, it does a lot. Like, you know, being able to draw a card or discard a card, you're like, okay, but like, then I just have a 1 1 that's like, yeah, but like, if you're flooding, that's pretty great. Or if you're behind and like, you just really need to jam your Godric or whatever, making a treasure token. And then also, it can just be a 2 2 haste. Like, I don't know. Or, or you can make your other thing bigger. I the, the card does not read as good as it is. Yeah, it's a lot of. It's really interesting how strong being able to put like I mean your Phoenix chick looks bad if you put a wicked roll on a Phoenix chick it looks pretty good yeah if yeah your monetary spear as a one two is like you know it's weak we're not able to enable it as a two three prowess like that thing is really really hard to justify putting a removal spell at yeah like, I think there's a lot of value there that red really leans into and also even just like making a treasure token so that you can two spell your three drops uh like or a removal spell in your three drop a turn sooner um. Or like you said, trigger uh, celebration for uh, for Godric. Like all of those are really, really important kind of glue that that card provides. Uh, next up, uh, we have Golgari Midrange. This was the deck 
talked about probably the most before worlds. Um, you know, we saw it take do way better worlds than it should have for the matchups that it hit. Um, really overperformed there. But now I think we kind of see like the truth of the deck and it's kind of like, you know, a, a good mid range deck. Um, honestly, I think this deck is in a little bit of a, a crisis of like what it's trying to be. You know, it went from being like the best Liliana deck to a format where maybe that doesn't matter as much anymore as it did when it was, oh, like I get to be a Liliana sheltered deck, but I don't have to be mono black and I get Moss with Dread Knight. And that was a really appealing. And I don't think right now that's the most appealing thing anymore. And so this deck has kind of lost some some of its legs. But with with the ramp decks kind of being down, except for kind of the one we'll talk about, I don't know, maybe it can make a comeback. I really like this deck against Esper, for example. Um, so, like, if there's one deck that beats the decks that I think are the best decks in the format, this would be one of them. Yeah, I was going to ask, what, in your opinion... Uh, do you think has changed to make this deck kind of not as high performing? Like, what are the matchups that are dawning in the format that that you think are making this not just the de facto best deck that I think a lot of people who played it like it has a lot of lot of finishes in the top sixteen, top thirty two of these challenges from this weekend. Uh, but yeah. what do you think really made it? Uh, yeah, like kind of fall flat. So I think I think one thing is that virtue is really good against this deck because. Like, like playing against this deck at instant speed is really effective. So you've seen a lot of the decks, and we'll talk about this when we get to Soldiers too. like, have just moved into, like, the complete Flash deck. And then it's like, okay, well, how does my mid-range deck compete with that? Because they get to play the game during my turn. And I, I think that's actually hurt this deck a lot. So you think it's a matter of, like, maneuvering? Yeah, I think that people have... I think that's, like, one of the reasons that you see the way that the, the, the blue decks are built right now, the blue aggressive or mid-range decks are built, is because this deck was beating them. And so it's like, okay, well, what if I just don't play anything? What are you going to do? Yeah, forcing them to like play their threats into, yeah. into them and then leveraging the speed of it. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, this deck is, I think... I think there's still time for this shell. Like, I think Mosword Dread Knight is just such a good card. Oh, yeah. Um... And and like Lissa is such a good card that and Children and Liliana right are such good cards that it's really um, possible this deck to, to kind of turn things around and adapt. But I think that this definitely seems like what got preyed on early on is kind of the incumbent, uh, you know, stepping into things. Yeah, um, I, I also think that the next deck that we're going to talk about um, is actually a, probably a problem for this deck. Uh, it's called Jund Ramp on Goldfish. I really hate it the Goldfish does this. Would you describe this deck as Jund, Abe? So, let, let, let's get a little bit into this deck, because I think this is a deck that even when I was looking at it, I wasn't very familiar with. This Jund ramp deck, it does have uh, four Zetorius Proving Ground, four, four Jund Triome, um, but the only green cards in it has some sideboard Terra Sunders, and it has... Uh, Itali can can flip for for green, but that's the only green cards in it. It's otherwise uh, really like a black red uh, kind of like ramp or or control deck, more like the uh, maybe like the Alvin's Epiphany. We call those decks ramp decks back uh, a few a few years ago. 
Yeah, it's like a but big. It's, it's, it's got his big score, Celtius and Iron Crag. Yeah, so it's got it's got Celestis, Iron Crag, um, you know, just like some mana rocks. It's got four big score to like really like jolt itself up to the the things it's topping out at, which are Atali um, and Breach the Multiverse. And it's really bridging the gap by just and Chandra, but it's really bridging the gap by like just casting Burn Down the House and Brotherhood's End, uh, a bunch of removal. Uh, it's got Decadent Dragon. That's the one with the adventure where you like ex- you like draw two cards off your opponent's library. Um, that's a four four that uh, like attacks and creates a treasure. But it's really like your kind of bigger mid rangey control deck, I guess. Like it doesn't have it like it has inevitability of just its threats being being bigger and it wants to get to land seven or eight kind of like the Ugin control decks of like like coarser Ugin kind of decks. It's like, okay, we'll take the game really long, we'll make a lot of mana, and then my my haymakers will will kind of uh pave the way for the rest and it's just a pile of removal otherwise. But uh like the, this deck I think is really um you know it's it's not it's not very jund. I think it's more of like a black red control deck. Yeah. Um, that just that just cleans up the board. Yeah, I think this deck is taking. Um, if you were to ask me, like, what's the difference between San Diego and right now? It's that anybody who was going to be playing like mono white or white splash black or stuff like that has probably gravitated towards something like this. And to be fair, I don't even know if that's correct. Um, I, I think that. One thing that I'm quite sure of is that Breach the Multiverse is a great way to end games in Standard. Um, and it is about how you want to do that. Like, this person uh, has gone with the Chandra's Hope's Beacon, Breach the Multiverse deck with Primal Conqueror that does basically the same thing anyway. It, it is it is interesting. Like, th- this, this deck is saying, okay, I'm going to let you play to the board as much as you want. And then I'm going to win the game with a haymaker, like you said. And in the case of, um, you know, like the mono white deck from San Diego or going into that, it was playing to the board with you and just gaining incremental advantages until it played its haymakers and then you you just had no chance. So it's really interesting to kind of see the kind of the flip side of that exact coin. Yeah, I think that this is a deck that really illustrates kind of how different the format is without Bankbuster, where Bankbuster was a card that just naturally allowed this kind of stuff to happen. You could just play a polish removal, and then no matter what, you'd have your mid-rangey thing going on to you know, recoup the cards, or especially looking at like a deck that's primarily black-red, the absence of Fable and Invoke were really pushing out decks like this from existing, but uh, in the absence of those... Uh, you know, there's not really room for a deck like Mono White to have the card generation, the resource generation, to uh, to like out muscle or out answer everything, um, or find all the cards it needs. Whereas now, like this this Blacker deck gets to do that because of things like you know the adventure spells and big score, um, kind of selecting through the through the chaff and through like you know amount of flooding you're doing or you know, having and allowing it to use sweepers to to clean up a lot of the decks that are playing to the board in the format, uh, which is a lot like the mono white game plan for, from then, but uh, just enacted differently with the cards that is available. So uh, I think this deck probably is another one that 
is you can attribute to being uh, a big thorn in the side for Golgari because I think that a lot of the stuff going on here is just better than anything their deck does. Correct me if I'm wrong there, Spencer, but that that definitely looks like something yeah, more about the much, player. Yeah, it, it's the same thing, right? Like, they're not playing to the board, so how am I supposed... Like, half my deck just turns off when I'm playing Golgari. Yeah, and as Golgari, all I do is I, I just play a bunch of creatures yeah. uh, that are trying to, like, generate value on the board, and my opponent's got, you know, six ways to wipe the board, and uh, like, eight to ten removal spells, and, like, they'll just catch Breach, cast Breach the Multiverse or Atali and, and you know, completely... My, my game of inches is getting completely lapped by their game of miles. So, uh, yeah, definitely. I think this is a deck where, like, if I not to not to bear the lead on on when we start talking about decks we play, this is a deck that I was really interested in playing some and playing some more of because it just seems really really fun. Uh, next we have Domain Ramp. This deck uh, had two top sixteens in the challenge this weekend, uh, or but both of them being fourteenth place, which is funny. Um, I believe they're actually pretty different versions. From if I remember correctly from this morning, maybe they're not. Either way, um, oh yeah, yeah, only two up the beanstalks in this version. Uh, this deck was, you know, came out, you know, uh, kind of like guns blazing. Uh, was a huge part of the standard metagame for the last little bit. Um, you know, it's a deck that obviously, uh, right when the bans happened, was the deck that I told people uh, in our Discord to play. I even said play Curious Beef Briefcase. Probably, I might have been the first one to say, just take out your big busters, put a briefcase, you're good. Uh, it. I don't think that this deck is not doing well because of anything. In, I mean, it's doing fine. It's a it's a part of the meta game, but this deck has a problem where the the best two decks, in my opinion, which are Soldiers and Esper, are built to beat this deck right now. And as long as they are focused on you, you're in pretty big trouble. Yeah, I think that, uh, like, just talk to, to the difference between the two lists. Um, the list from the Saturday Challenge is a lot more like the deck you might be familiar with if you were watching Worlds or have played Sanderson's Worlds, where it has, you know, the invasions of... Uh, Zendikar, you're really like ramping out your lanes that way. Uh, it's got the briefcases, whereas um, Jabberwocky kind of took the deck in a different direction for the Sunday challenge, where he just said, you know, I'm, I'm playing four off the Beanstalk, four Spelunking, um, just as another way to to just put lands into play and, and buy some time and get some space, and then also uh, you know, have it so that all the tapped lands in the metabase aren't so uh, so painful, and then just play seven Wraths, you know, three to populate, four Sunfall, four Herd Migration, four Arkhandra Wrath, three Atraxa, um, you know, four Leyland Binding with the four up the Beanstalk, and uh, like, just try to run away with games that way, and saying that up the Beanstalk is actually the best two-drop spell, and Spelunking is going to be your best ramp spell, rather than trying to focus on, you know, the whole, like, Topiary Stomper and Invasion plan, because it's just not it's not good into what the format is about right now with uh, with decks like Esper, and it's just better to be a Wrath deck. So it's really cool to see kind of the first tuning of uh, of like a deck happening kind of live in, in just that first week and seeing Jabberwocky try to really just streamline it down. Um, I don't know if you have any other thoughts about 
I have a lot of thoughts about this deck, obviously. Uh, the other thing that I really like that Jabberwocky did is he made his only creature be angels. So Atraxa and Angel of Wrath, so that he can profitably play Cavern of Souls um, pretty easily. Um, the, he, uh, I, I think, I think that there is going to be room for multiple ramp decks in this format. Um, we have a dinosaur that discovers five that also acts as a bridge spell in a three mana d- deal three. Um, that, and we also have a dinosaur that ramps you on turn three. Um, so Cavern of Souls, once again, might be able to be. I was saying this in our Discord that I think that one, I, I think that the fact that Leyline Binding exists makes you want to play, and, and her migration makes you want to play some kind of like, no, the, your, your Ram deck's probably not going to be two colors, um, even though it could be. But I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I think that this deck is currently suffering from the fact that the two best decks can play easily just play removal uh, or counter spells. Like, I lost to this deck game one with Esper, sideboarded into Disdainful Strokes and Negates uh, today, and was like, well, this isn't close now. Like, you you don't even, you don't stand a chance. And whatever Milwaukee's trying to do is say like, okay, well, I'm just going to avoid this fight over my ramp spells um, and make them not ever be able to be countered by most of what you're doing. Other than like, you know, if you want to actually take a turn off to do it. Yeah, I also think that it's like what you said about Cavern on Angel is really important because like, if you look at the way his position is ramp, it's not so much anymore trying to just get ahead on lands as it is trying to use like Spelunking, like casting a turn for Spelunking and then being able to play reliably a turn for like kicked Archangel for one or turn five kicked Archangel for two. Um, and also being another another turn ahead of casting two spelling or casting um like your herd migrations because all of your triomes are coming to play untapped i think is uh is pretty big but it, it seems like that's kind of his mission statement of let's resolve our threats and let's resolve our interact spells and our bridge spells and make it so that if you're just trying to disdainful stroke everything i do that's not going to be a good playing so if i'm sniffing out you kind of not playing to the board and holding up a disdainful stroke or negate, I'll just cast an Archangel with a Cavern and kill your creature, and then you have to commit and have to be like tying up your mana. And so I think it's it's cool to see these plans kind of start coming together. Um, but we'll we'll something to keep an eye on. I, th- I think this deck is like far from far from gone. I think it's also really good up the Beanstalk deck with just like Beanstalk into Beanstalk into Depopulate being a really really strong uh, strong curve. And, and as, with the exception of against. Uh, some of these flashier, uh, like, like especially like Esper, which has a lot of flash elements, um, is just just a really strong plan against a lot of things right now. Sorry about another deck that has a lot of flash elements, uh, and the deck that I, I I personally from playing think is the best deck in the format, but that's just right now. Like, I think that you know we're pretty early; things can change. Uh, that's soldiers. So this deck, um, I, I did. Did this win Worlds? I don't remember if... I don't remember. Either way... Um, so th- this deck is a... Low to the ground, go wide, draw a lot of cards. This deck does a lot of things. Have you have you played with or watched this deck, Abe? 
Uh, I have seen seen it, and it it is a very very efficient, um, you know, two color kind of flash mid range uh, deck. Like really, I think it's the best deck at leveraging make disappear. Um, yeah, at as being the spell that it can be of like basically being mana leak. Like no matter what you're trying to do, if it matters to me, it's not going to resolve yeah. for the first like six turns of the game. That's yeah. what, it, what it gets to do. One of the things that's really cool about this deck is between Wedding Announcement and Knight of uh, Eos, Knight Aaron of Eos, um, this deck is really good at like gaining card advantage throughout the game, as well as with, with Recruitment Officer, like a deck that you would interpret as like, oh, like I'm just this, like, it's just this aggro beatdown deck. That is not how the deck plays out. It, it, you know, it can have those games where like, you know, it goes one drop, two drop, uh, three drop, you know night you're dead but that is a benefit to it um in addition to the fact that it has longevity um you know fortified uh beachhead uh, is able to you know close games out um you know you're able to save your creature from removal with sentinel and you know buy buy back things it, it it does quite a bit yeah, and I think that it's important to kind of mention that I think when a lot of people hear, like, Azorius Soldiers, they might think of the deck that played a lot of the Brothers War um, and Dominaria, like, the Lord and uh, the one that made the tokens you could tap creatures, tap soldiers to draw a card. Mm-hmm. Um, those are all gone from these decks. This is, like, actually the curve ends at like, as far as threats, it's like Wedding Announcement is the top of its curve. I guess that's Night Air Interview, so that's Convoke. Doesn't count. Um, that's a two-drop. It's a zero-drop yeah. in this deck a lot of the time. Yeah, it, it uses its extra bodies for that in order to keep uh, keep things going. But, like, it's really a blue-white Flyers tempo deck, and leveraging, like, Zephyr Sentinel picking up Resolute Reinforcements, or one-drops like Lunark Veteran, or Recruitment Officer, um, you know, Fairy Mastermind, Harbin, all of these really efficient, um, you know, all-in-one threats for two mana that then also are backed up by uh harbin all are backed up by the flash elements harbin is the reason that you can call this soldiers right it's because it's playing just enough soldiers to enable this you know and that's it like that's that's how much soldiers it wants to play and then the rest of its game plan is about gaining card advantage like you know leveraging make disappear and wedding announcement and knight errant as like okay well this i want the format to be about these things so like let's make it about these things yeah i think fortified beachhead is also just secretly the most important soldier card here like outside of like this the minor synergies of zephyr sentinel and harbin like having another untapped blue white land when you're playing a density of soldiers that also on like a pivotal turn you can decide okay well i have like three flying creatures or even four flying creatures, or all these tokens that I've amassed over the course of the game, and now I'm going to be able to make them plus one, plus one this turn only, is still enough when you're dealing that chip damage in the air for a while um, to swing things, and also enable you to be able to play such a tight, pip-dense uh, curve. Um, and also, yeah, just, just having really good mana um, makes this deck really potent in a way that maybe you know the Esper deck might be a little more awkward or um or or have have its own issues so uh definitely like a, a big change to what you might have thought this deck would be if you had played only uh only like six months ago uh 
but but definitely one where it's it's really showing how the rules of engagement are changing. Another deck that's really punishing decks like the Golgari mid-range deck for playing these more powerful but more expensive um, threats at sorcery speed um, compared to these kind of weak, like masses of weaker, trickier, flashy things. Uh, big shout out to Werefox Bodyguard being a two of in these decks. I think it's like probably one of the better things to get off Night Errant Vios to like close a game. Yeah, and also. It also serves as being kind of like a in the ways that you care about, kind of like a mystic snake of like you know okay so you played your your thing to stabilize the board, I'm gonna pay more than my average card in order to get a body and get that thing off yeah. the board for a bit, um, and I think that's just like a really really strong part of uh, of this deck that's also still a good virtue wedding announcement make despair deck on top of that. Let's talk about a deck that's trying to ignore the rules of engagement. Um, this was a deck that was really popular going into the new set. Um, in challenges is like a way to like, you know, it costs 50 bucks. You know, let's, let's try to run it. Uh, and that's, uh, I, I call it rule tricks because I think that's really what's happening here. Uh, so, uh, listen, I was a big fan of Thran Portal. I thought this card would eventually see play. I don't know if this is what I envisioned. When I saw it, I played a bunch of this deck and dedicated all of my time to that with Monstrous Rage and Question Druid uh, to, to really me and Abe as like, this is our deck. If you like listen to the Pick 2 set review, I think a lot of the cards from this have come from me and Abe. Abe, I, I gotta know, did you try this? Like, it would have taken you 12 seconds. Uh, Yeah, this deck feels a lot like... Um... The you're playing like the Pauper Green Stompy decks, where you're yeah. playing like Howl of the Howl yeah, of yeah, the, the Night Howl of the Night and, Back, Yeah, yeah. Like this is a deck that's actually playing Giant Growth in the year 2023, uh, and is playing like just combat tricks and like prowess creatures. It's a really really cool deck. Um, uh, like even like down to like Picnic Runner Ruiner or whatever. Like it, it's it's a really all in. Um, kind of cool, tricky deck that uh, it does put a lot of pressure on the format. And I think is mostly like I'm surprised these builds are playing are built as they are. Like I'm surprised they're not playing four real treatment. Um, they are. They're just in the board. I'm saying I'm not, I'm probably not playing in the main oh, with the sure. amount of like cut downs and uh, and things. But even like cards like cut down, I guess probably just get countered by like a giant growth or a monstrous rage, right? Like just, yeah. Pump spell countering, yeah, countering the the one mana rule spells uh, is pretty good. You know, for audacity, it's really like I think the testament to questing druid and how good and how much of a draw that card is. That um, just finding more ways to throw pieces of cardboard at the game and trying to do things faster than the opponent um, and overwhelm them, even if it seems like these might be weaker cards, uh, is really strong. This is uh, this is not this is not Spencer's Gruel Aggro deck. So like a lot of people messaged me about this deck, like oh Spencer, did you see Gruel Aggro is good? And I was like, I, I don't know if this is like the Spencer the Spencer version of Gruel Aggro, but I did play a bunch of this deck. It's actually this week. I'm really glad you mentioned Questing Druid because this deck is able to like I don't know, play a couple one drops, uh, you know. Leave up mana, because they're not going to block you, because they're afraid to get blown out. And then you just, like, question Druid, and then you have, like, three or four mana, and you just win the next turn. It's really weird. 
This deck does not play at all how it looks on paper to me. Uh, and I actually lost, I think, my first two or three matches with this deck before, like, winning my next five, preparing for this podcast. And it is, it's because the deck's weird. Like, Picnic Ruiner, uh, Questing Druid, like, they all play really... It, I, I think this deck is a little bit counterintuitive because you're like, oh, you know, you just, I just play my stuff, throw my combat tricks at it, and win the game. But you actually are trying to gain incremental advantages while doing that, and that takes a little bit of enabling. Yeah, it, this is definitely a deck for people who really enjoy... Like, if you're someone who enjoyed the idea of going, like, become men's team or battle rage and standard back in the day, this deck appeals to that a lot, but also I think appeals to, uh, like, if you liked the parts of playing, like, a banned heroic deck or something like that, where you... Um, Right, you're kind of posturing with your opponent and making them like say, okay, is this where I want to pick my fight? Because if I cast my spell, I'm even getting a card that matters. You know, my opponent has this mana up. What is it going to be for? Um, and, and kind of playing that kind of game with your opponent. I think there's room on, on both sides of that for this deck to be really fun. And I think it, it's pretty strong too. Like I think that when it is good and when you understand how to pilot it through what you're playing against, um, it has a raw speed to handle things like the domain deck um, and some of its best draws, like Cacophony Scamp on turn one against domain, if they just like cast a Beanstalk on turn two, like it's very possible they're going to die on, on your turn. Dude, like, you're on the play and you do that, like they could just die. Yeah, I, the number of times where my opponent does not realize what that card does and they just die instantly is way too high. Yeah, if I play a Picnic Runer on two and you, like if I go Cacophony Scamp, Picnic Runer, and you play a beanstalk on the draw, you might just lose the game. Yeah. Like it is very possible for you to die in turn three that way. Yeah. Um, with just a couple of giant growths or like uh monstrous rages. So um really, really sweet deck, and definitely one that I I'm not sure if I have it in me to bring it to like an RCQ without playing a lot more of it. Um when when that season comes, but certainly you one gotta that be I think prepared really for it cool. though. Like if you're not prepared for this and you don't know how the deck works, this this is gonna take some games off people. Yeah, definitely. So the next deck I wanted to highlight, just because they have it split, and I don't think there's that big of a distinction between Boros and Mono White, because all the Mono White decks play red at this point for the aggro decks. Um, these are what you would basically think. Um, I'm a big fan of looking at Mog's deck lists on MTGO. Uh, they had a, uh, a top eight on the, the Sunday challenge. Um, as well as, uh, I think they had a, yeah, top 32 on the, the Saturday one, as well as there was a ninth. So, okay. Um, this, this deck is what you would think mono white would be in both cases, except it's just playing slight splashes for things like Intel, uh, or, uh, some legendary stuff. Um, and then the other version uh, is not playing any spells, and it's just kind of like all in on creatures. But they're both m white aggressive decks playing Hopeful Initiate and Warden of the Inner Sky. Yeah, I think the biggest distinction between the Mono White deck and the Boros deck is that the Mono White deck is playing Imidane's Recruiter, um, which is the the adventurer uncommon from yep. Eldraine, which is like five mana make two two twos and then two and a red to ETB like puzzle so and haste the team. Yep. Uh 
but now it gets to play that, and those splashes are pretty free because there are so many. All these things are humans, uh, and so Cavernous Souls helps make the mana work there. Um, so just included courtyard, um, and like playing some battlefield forges is pretty free for a deck like this when it already wants to play lantern flares in the sideboard. Yep. Um, but the Boros deck, which I think is really really um, sweet and has a lot of cool synergy in it with some of the new cards like uh, Inti um, and Anim Pakal. Um, Int being one that I talked about a couple weeks ago on the set review, um, where you get to like discard a card and kind of impulse draw when you discard cards and yeah. put counters on things and get them trample, along with an imp call being uh, like another Adeline. So this is kind of like an eight Adeline deck. Yep. Um, where it's just playing playing early with like uh, you know a bunch of one drops, warning the inner sky, recruitment officer, hopeful initiate. Lunar veteran and uh, like really leaning into the human synergies even more with like copper coat vanguards um, and and Kellens. So yeah, it, uh, it kind of took a departure in like a split because mono white humans was actually an aggressive deck right before like a little during the last iteration of standard. Um, I I I think what's interesting to me is seeing two adjacent things splashing red when like neither of them play a mono red land in the whole 75. Like they're, they're, they're both like, no, we're splashing red. Um, and both of them are like focusing on human one drops. It's, it is an interesting place to be where it's like, this is one of those archetypes that I think has some tuning to go to find like its sweet spot. Yeah. I think that like the most striking difference between the two decks, even though they're kind of playing a lot of the same core is that the, uh, mono white deck is a two Adeline deck, and the Boros deck is effectively an eight Adeline deck. Like when you think about it that yeah, way, like which that. of those that's things, which of those things is is what you want to be doing? Um, I think the Boros aggro deck is saying a lot more. It's about what you're doing in the first like three turns and just having this like trying to have your most unbeatable card hit the board on three and playing a one drop and a two drop into it and, and maximizing that even playing copper coat Vanguard to give ward one to these virtual copies of Adeline or actual copies of Adeline, just such a powerful card um, that that's what it's trying to be about versus uh, something like mono white, where it's maybe playing for a little bit more resilience, a little more interaction with the board, more, um, you know, brutal Cathars, Knight Errant of, of Eos um, able to play a, a slower game, maybe around like using Warden of the inner sky um, things like that, rather than than just trying to attack uh, straight out the gate and and kind of being secondarily, let's build a board um, with with some of these effects and, and have more staying power power, which I think is more in line with kind of the pacing of the format. Whereas the mid range decks are right decks that are going to be really good at blocking in the early game um, and trading off creatures are are falling behind uh, to like you know I think like Schooner and Rafine. Uh, and, and also just the, the flying creatures out of out of Azorius. Like, those are all things that disincentivize you from trying to do a game plan like that. Those also make it so that as those decks get weaker, decks like the Sporos Aggro deck get stronger. Because I don't care if you have a bunch of three two mana, three two flyers, if I'm playing three mana, uh, like, six fours yeah. that also are putting out additional attackers, and I, I'm pumping those and, like, gaining life with... Um, with like Lunark Veteran when I'm making these tokens and stuff, like I, I can outpace that. And so I think this has been a pretty interesting uh, like thing to look at as far as how that's that's developed. All right. Uh, okay. 
So we've talked about some of the, the high-level decks. Um, there, there are a few decks that we'll give honorable mentions to after this. But what, what does this feel like the format is about to you, Abe? It feels like the format right now is about... Uh, it's about maneuvering. I think it's, it's really interesting to see how many decks are playing two-mana flash creatures because of, um, like, because of the virtues... And because of like how good Zephyr Sentinel and Resolute Reinforcements is, it's about like there's ways to get this material in play, and kind of go wide a lot, um, or ways to get on the board effectively uh, for for cheap, and then leveraging it as early as turn three. Like Rafine is not that different than a card like Adeline, uh, except for the fact that it lets you play cards that are more interactive because you can loot away the ones that are bad, um, or leverage the ones that are good to, to kind of clear the way, and it'll build itself up rather than needing it to just kind of play better with more creatures. Um, but the, the format's a lot about a lot about those things, as opposed to maybe in the past where the format had been about Shieldred or been about like Fable and Invoke and Bankbuster are all cards that I think the standard form is about that are all cards that are all surrounded by cards that are still legal. Like we're removing those and seeing how that's impacted what the format is actually like is actually about and how often even in a deck like right, it's Azorius Soldiers, but they're still playing Fairy Mastermind as just a, another two mana two one flyer with good text on it. Um, you know, really trying to to play to the evasion and play to the nature of of beating interaction and, and kind of weaving around things. Um, I think that's what the format is about a lot right now. If you if you don't have a solid early game or you're not able to play a flexible early game, and kind of a necessity for playing those instant speed threats is to be able to leave up interaction for some of the most the more powerful things. Either you know having your two mana counter magic for the things that the ramp decks are doing, or your removal for the things that your aggro decks are doing. Um, that kind of versatility, but ability to interact in short windows of the game, um, I think is really really important. And so it's about um, it's about the early game a lot right now. I think that that's kind of what the format is. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, you know, that happens as formats get larger. And as this format got larger than we've seen standard in a long time, it made it so it's like, okay, can I afford to take turn one off? And the answer is mostly yes. But then it means that everything after that is really, really important. Whereas, like, if you look last, last format, it was like, oh, can I afford to take, like, a little bit even more off and and be like, you know, this this domain deck that's like basically taking turn off, getting incremental advantages. I think the format is his has become like, okay, like I need to either either like have perfect mana in to for a sacrifice of turn one or make efficient plays throughout the game because everybody's cards are going to be more efficient as we go on. Yeah, and I think that it's just kind of natural that the format's bigger right? There's more good, cheap cards, and playing more of them is more effective than playing less of them. Uh, but also, there's more ways to go over the top of each other, so if you found find ways to to beat those smaller game plans, right, like if your deck, like this, this Jund ramp deck that just has a bunch of sweepers and spot removal, um, and then ways to go over the top, a deck like that can exist because the ways to go over the top are so good, there's a lot of diversity in um, in both the threats and the answers, and I think the decks that really leverage that they have a lot more depth to them. Um, but also, like right now, there's just a lot more options than there 
has been for years and has, as you might even remember standard for a long time there's just more options for what you can do um and even more overlap than them so that you have a high density being able to play a deck that's maybe you know tops out its curve realistically is playing a bunch of really really good cards and wetting out and stop its curve um is is really something we're not used to seeing is the format itself absolutely not i think i think it's like there's so many cards legal that it's impossible for me to believe that every deck has done everything it can to try to adapt to what's winning right now and i think even though you know if you look at the challenge results um from the sunday challenge where you know like it looked like maybe like a third of the top 32 were all playing esper and just copied the deck from um from the week before or from the, the night before um in that challenge even with that like we are seeing already that in the first two days like domain innovating we're seeing room for uh you know the white the mono white deck to become more like the boros deck and choose the things you're about the amount of options that are there it's impossible for me to believe that the format is solved when we, the set's been out for a week i think that anyone yeah. trying to tell you that is is trying to sell you snake oil you say some snake oil no i'm just kidding no I, I think that there are clear best two decks and i think that we've kind of talked about them like i, I think that that make disappear and like instant speed interaction, as you said, is what the format is about. And so it leads you into these decks that are able to play and maneuver at, at certain points in the game to make the game about what they want it to be about according to what their hand looks like. But that doesn't mean that there aren't powerful things available to outmaneuver those things and to, or, or to outclass them. So, um, just want to mention some things that we didn't mention. Dino's got a top eight. Um, uh, this on Sunday, I believe true control is something that people have tried. I don't think that I saw any this weekend, but it's, it, you know, whether it be Esper blue, white has, has legs, uh, mono blue, I believe did get a top. Maybe, maybe it didn't, but mono blue. And then Raksak. Um uh, Raksak has a bunch of cards that it's not supposed to have right now. Um, and, uh, people are innovating on that. Um, so, yeah, I think that Rakdos stack deck, it's using the the red god, um, Odorax, yeah. uh, and uh, Oni Cult Anvil, yep. which deals one damage and is a it's red. Not, it's not supposed to do this. Source. This is not supposed to happen. Th this, is, this is one of those things we're talking about, like, there are more cards in the format than was intended by Wisdom and Design, and so that's a, it's, it's a fantastic example of, like, what that can mean. And I think that's a really sweet and powerful like combo or whatever, being able to play your your red god and then be like, okay, I'll tap my two anvils and deal you eight, uh, is is powerful. And that's why it's so hard to say, has this really been solved? Do like, you know, can you even come close to solving it when there's so much room for things like this yeah. to be happening? You know, uh, I I definitely say no. Yeah. So um, yeah, re really really cool cool decks out there. Even the dinosaurs deck was really cool too. Um, yeah, di very different from the previous Ixalan Dinosaurs deck too. So it's like it's like a sharp departure. Yeah, much more like the the Pioneer Gruel deck, I yeah. think. Um, in kind of just being like a top out of five, uh, low to the ground, like two and three drop creature based mid range deck. All very like really really great options. No matter what kind of player you like are, and what kind of decks you like to gravitate to. Uh, there's a lot going on in the format, and I think a lot of it is really viable, um, which I think is really good. I think it's a really, really great format. What would you play if there was an RCQ for you next weekend, Dave? 
Let's see. If the standard season started tomorrow and I was playing an RCQ tomorrow, I would probably play either the Jund ramp deck, because I do think it's sweet, the Blackguard ramp deck, or um, or the Boros aggro deck. I, I think the like eight Adeline deck seems really, really appealing to me, um, just in terms of what I like to play. And I think the the Jund deck is actually kind of doing some cool things in the context of what the Esper decks are doing. And if that's like the most played deck, uh, I could see it having having a pretty good uh, try against those. Yeah, I would I would play Soldiers. Um, I think I think that deck uh, is able to 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 play by the current rules of engagement really well, and uh, it'd be something I was interested in. Uh, if you want to ask a question on the show, you can come in a Patreon of $5 or more. Get access to the special Patreon questions in the score where Jeff asks, if you had any, how did you break through points in your match career when you felt like your goals were out of reach? We talked about this a little bit during Always Improving, but why don't you go first, Dave? Yeah, so I talked about this in terms of uh, like win-ins for top eights. So at the time it was like SDG IQs. Um, but I would say that, like, probably my biggest, uh, my biggest point of breaking through the goal that felt out of reach was when I qualified for my first uh, pro tour. And I talked about the story on the first episode I was ever on, which was about setting goals in Magic um, with Mason. It was just the two of us, and I told the story of how I was. Like I work with, and I still work with a lot of these people on on Magic to this day. Uh, I was working with a couple of my friends who were close with me and, and local to me um, on the RPTQ, and I, you know, I mean, it's, it wasn't my first RPTQ; it was my first PTQ. I had had PTQ top eights and like made deep runs in tournaments and not not converted. Had like missed those top eights, not had the, the shots, and. Um, you know, I just had this feeling based on this like interaction I had that my process wasn't working. It wasn't going to be good for me. And I was working with the wrong people. And I just, um, I had this big moment of, I just want to work with someone else or work in a different way than I have been. Um, because I, I can feel that this is not going to be what's going to set me up for the most success and really not being afraid in that moment to change everything about what I was doing. Um, and rearrange my structure uh, of of how I was preparing. Uh, that, whether or not I realized it at the time, was the best thing I could have done to break through what felt like a period of being stagnant. Um, in in hindsight, of like where I was, I had been a good player who was putting up. You know, I was catching events I was playing and, you know, day twoing some Grand Prix and, you know, top eighting PPTQs and winning them, but, uh, you know, was not getting much further than that, but really changing everything around and, and really working with everything again from the ground up uh, and looking at what it is I wanted to accomplish and, and taking the time to really dig into that. Um, you know, it, it made it so that the things that were out of reach doing things the same way I had been doing them became attainable to me. Um, through the fact I was working with then people who were um, like more aligned with how I saw the game and discussed the game or had, you know, more insight into what it was I was speaking to. Um, and also were just more 
uh, like able to enable me to have a process where I was getting higher quality testing in through playing more magic online, um, rather than kind of sticking with where I was. So, uh, that's what I would say was probably my, my biggest breakthrough point was doing that. And I think that there's a lot of like the lesson that I, I take out of there. Um, and I try to pass on to people is, you know, like, especially thinking about it now, all these years later is the same two people who made me want to pull my hair out to the point where I was like, I need to test other people. I just can't, I, I understand what you guys are trying to do and you're trying your hardest. And like, but the way that we're talking about this, the way it's, it's not productive for me, we still like drive to RCQs together. We stay together at the RCs. Like we are still so like so tight and, and play together all the time and still some of but heads over the same things, but we follow our own processes now and, and like work through that. But being willing to move out of my comfort zone in that way, and evaluate what I needed, um, and just change my process in a way that was new to me, um, and embracing the unknown of that and what that could mean as far as, you know, is this going to be better or worse for this RPTQ I care about, um, you know, to do something different than what's gotten me, you know, solidly okay results in the past. Um, not being afraid of that is really what was able to push me um, to succeed. Uh, at the level that I wanted to for a, a goal that I'd been chasing for years at that point. And I, I, I've been getting closer through working, you know, working at it and, and taking the shots, but, but really um, accelerating past that uh, and, and seeing such a big jump to success as soon as I was working in ways that I kind of knew were better ways to work, but, but putting myself in position to embrace those um, was really how I, how I did it. I don't know, Spencer, if you have anything you want to speak to. Yeah, um, first of all, I just want to say that I love yours. Um, I, I've told mine on the podcast, who knows how many years ago, but it was, it was I actually, the podcast might have been going when this happened. I don't actually remember. Um, that's what happens when you do a podcast for a decade. Uh, I was at uh, the Utah Magic Open, uh, which was a spinoff of a tournament series that actually started. Um, I don't remember the, the prizes or anything, but uh, myself and Alex Center actually intentionally drew in round one um, because I was playing Gruul, and we both want to play against like Blue Eye Control, which is a very popular deck uh, in that that standard format. Um, and also, like you know, who cares? Like you know, we're just we're both trying to make top eight, and it sounded fun. Um, and I think that we were at 301 at some point, and I remember, like, fist bumping him and saying, like, oh, like, you know, X more to go. And I think it was a, a seven-round tournament with plus top eight. I think it was like, oh, you know, two more to go. And he was like, no, there's five more to go. And I said, what? It was, yeah, I don't care about top eighting this thing. Like, I, I want the trophy. I want to win. And I, I don't think that this is how he meant, meant it, but, like, internalize, I internalized that a lot as, like, is there actually that big of a difference at the end of the day from round three and and the finals? Like, when you're playing Magic, is, is, is there any legitimate difference other than the stakes? And the answer was no. And it especially, as somebody that was, like, at the time, top eighting a ton of events, and I'm being super happy about their top eights. About like, oh, you know, I top eighted this, I top eighted this, I top eighted this, I top eighted this. 
Um, but you know, dad, you know, uh, you know, I, I had one, one States, but like, what, what did I close that? You know, what, what was holding me back from closing? Um, just realizing that the, the best player in Utah didn't approach a tournament the same way that I did, didn't approach success the same way I did. And instead was like, I don't know, like I, I have a shot to, to, for winning in at every tournament. So like that, that doesn't matter to me anymore. Now it's like, okay, just close. Um, it was, it was a huge level of moment. I ended up taking second at that event. Um, uh, ended up winning both, like a lot more. I mean, we did a podcast that was really popular on this episode on this show called like how to win your local one K and the number of like those type of events that I've won since then, um, skyrocketed after this. So, um, yeah, it also aligned with a piece of advice that Alexander Hain gave me, which was to stop splitting and like close. So that, that I would say that that was a huge moment. Like when I stopped caring about the top eight and kind of from before the narrative around, you know, the success that I just had and started saying like, okay, well, let's, let's do the thing. Uh, it, it was really helpful and it, it, it took, it also took pressure off of those like winning ins. It took pressure off of those top eight matches. Um, it also somehow took pressure off of those finals matches. Right. Cause like at the end of the day, it's just another match. So. Yeah. I think it's like, I love how you spoke to that, especially in the context of the question of like feeling like your goals are out of reach. Like, that's something where literally all you did was you started framing it as if the goal was something you were aspiring to reach, right? It's like, I let's not talk about it if I need this many more to top eight the tournament. Let's talk about how many more I need to win. You know, like, uh, putting it so that something that's in your conversation, what you're putting in reach for yourself, uh, like, that can be, yeah. that can be really, I really powerful. I shifted the goal up. I didn't shift the goal. Yeah. I shifted the goal up. It's like, and, you know, it's funny. Like, if your goal is like, oh, well, I'm trying to win an RCQ... So, like, this isn't applicable to me. Yeah, but, like, where do you put the pressure on yourself? Yeah. Yeah, making sure that, right, if the goal feels like it's out of reach, making sure it's in the conversation is important, too. Like, it can be that, like, okay, maybe maybe it's I need to do more. Like, in my case, it was I needed to do more differently in order to truly be where I needed to be um, or to, to achieve my goal that felt out of reach with how I was doing things at the time. But in your case, like, it could be that, the goal is actually in reach and you only feel like it's out of reach. Uh, and you just need to really believe in, in yourself and start framing things as it's, it's possible. You just need to need to achieve. So I, I hope that's helpful for you, Jeff. Yeah. Thank you so much for the question, Jeff. To the MTG one says, uh, I love he's driving the little motorcycle across the screen. Whenever Mason talks, it was, I love that too. It I, wasn't I, whenever Mason talked for what it's worth. It was it was a bit of while Mason was talking a, a lot. Yoshi on a on a motorcycle across the screen. I almost said something about it during the recording, but I didn't want to didn't want to bring it into things. So if you're a if you're a po- if an audio only listener, I implore you to go back and watch YouTube. <laughs> so that one. to be <laughs> fair, to be fair, uh, uh, I, my son, I go, I was downstairs. I think we were like playing Xbox together before the podcast started. My son hands me. This Yoshi Mario Kart, but Yoshi on a on a bike, and says, "Dad, will you make sure this is on the podcast for me?" And so, so you did. I did. Out of the year, <laughs> like that was it. That was that was the all the motivation I needed. Also, 
Yoshi on a bike is the best character in Mario Kart, and Mason's the best. Why wouldn't I do all Mason's talking? No argument here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, there we have a public Discord for uh, the Hezegi Media, you know, LLC, the, the, the company, uh, where you can talk fantasy football, you can talk magic, you can talk Smash, you, you can talk video games of all kinds. Um, we've also got the Patreon Discord for patrons of $5 or more. We also got the YouTube comments where you can talk about the fact that I played with a Yoshi bike on the podcast. I, I did not expect that to get a YouTube comment. Uh, but, you know, here we are. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at CCMTGLife. Subscribe and review. It's the best way to support the show. Don't forget to rest out. check out the rest of the network, the rest of Easy Game Media. Uh, we're going to be able to find you at you can find me over at uh, twitter.com slash more nothings. Um, I do have a little bit of room maybe for coaching for the next couple of weeks, but as we head into the holidays and then out of the holidays into the new year and closing up on multiple RCs and the pro tour, um, I will probably have to uh, have to limit my availability coming to that. So if you want to get in with me, uh, please reach out soon. Um, yeah, but that's that's where people can find me. Oh, and I did find out yesterday that Mason's not here to plug it, but I will be doing uh, coverage, I believe, with Mason of the um, back half of the Saturday NRG um, event this weekend. So so go ahead and look out for, for that. That'll be a good time. Be my second time in the booth with Mason. Um, last time, we got some pretty good reviews, and, and I think the model format's pretty sweet. Uh, so, you know, definitely check that out. Awesome. You can find me at uh, Heasy Game on X. Uh, I I just want to say I appreciate the people that reached out for coaching while I don't have a job. I actually plan on taking enough people to continue uh, when I do get a job. Um, I'm really excited for the the people that have reached out. Uh, I do still have availability um, even even during the holidays if you're looking for coaching before the RC or things like that. Please reach out. Don't forget that Mason also does coaching. You can follow him at Mason E. Clark. Um, and yeah, we missed you this week, Mason. Um, we were recording on a Tuesday, which is not normal for Mason. So, uh, you know, we had, to, we had to switch things up. Uh, what did you learn on the show this week? Gabe? You know, I learned a lot about Standard just through kind of being able to hear the middle section from, from you a bit of, of kind of like where my my attention being spent on the format was. Um, especially around like the development of like soldiers into being kind of a flash deck. I think you put it really well in that like I think a lot of decks right now are are being more and more flash decks and ultimately like looking at the rules engagement, I, I agreed with you after we talked about it a bit before the show. Um and like my own conclusions that that's a lot of what it's about. Um and so definitely having your perspective there filling in kind of the gaps on on that middle ground where I was not as tuned in on the format as working on other things. Um, I feel like I got a lot of context to how we got here um, as well as just where we are. Yeah. I honestly, I, I had looked at the Jabberwocky list earlier today as I was like looking at deck lists and I didn't even think about the Cavern of Souls thing uh, until like I brought it up on the show and then you actually like spelled it out really well. To make me think about, you know, why he would build the deck that way, um, especially with like spelunking. So that was really interesting. 
All right, that is going to do it. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. And we'll see everybody for episode 485 of Constructive Criticism next week. We missed you, Mason. Bye. Magic, magic, magic.